Welcome into our 5 o'clock hour of this Monday edition of News on the Hill. I am Brighton McConnell, news director for the station, substituting for Andrew Stuckey today. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll stick around because this 5 o'clock hour is jam-packed. We've got Art Chansky's Sports Notebook of the Day coming up, conversation with North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein about his lawsuit against the NCAA and its two-time transfer portal rule. And, of course, we've got our looks at 5 o'clock traffic and weather together still to come. But let's hop into our top local news story of the day. It is a big one, and it's in the sports realm, but stretches far beyond that. UNC basketball great Eric Montross has died at the age of 52 after a battle with cancer. Eric's family shared the news of through the Carolina men's basketball program this morning, saying that Montross passed on Saturday, surrounded by loved ones at his Chapel Hill home. Montross was a standout player for the Tar Heels men's team, a critical reason why they won the 1993 national title, and he went on to a long professional career in the NBA before settling into the radio analyst role on the Tar Heel Sports Network broadcasts of Carolina games. Now, it had been announced in March that Montross was stepping away from those radio duties due to this cancer, the type of which has not been publicly shared. And Montross shared a video message at the start of the basketball season in October to provide a brief update, but we had not heard much since until the news this morning of his death. Like when that news first broke of his diagnosis, we have since seen a huge outpouring of support for the Montross family and condolences shared by the greater UNC and basketball community today. That includes uh, several statements from university leaders. The athletics department as a whole put out a statement saying they are, quote, profoundly saddened and stunned by the loss of Eric Montross, one of our most beloved former student athletes at far too young of an age. Eric was a great player and an accomplished student, but the impacts he made on our community went way beyond the basketball court. He was a man of faith, a tremendous father, husband, and son, and one of the most recognizable ambassadors of the university and Chapel Hill. UNC Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz's statements reflected some of that. He said, quote, I am deeply saddened by the loss of my good friend and Tar Heel legend, Eric Montross. He was an incredible friend, a passionate leader, and an inspiring advocate for our campus. His impact extended well beyond the court with his tireless support of the UNC Children's Hospital and his annual Father's Day basketball camp. We have lost a great Tar Heel, and Eric will be truly missed. Eric Montross overlapped with current UNC head coach Hubert Davis for two years during his playing days with Dean Smith. And Davis shared this statement today. He said, quote, I am devastated. Eric was my friend. He was my teammate. Eric loved being a husband. He loved being a dad. He loved being a Tar Heel and he loved Carolina basketball. I miss him. And so many other leaders from across the state and basketball world sharing news as well, uh, sharing statements in, in the wake of this news as well. That includes North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, who's a UNC alumnus. Cooper tweeted today, quote, so very sad to hear the loss of Eric Montross, whose contributions to U- the UNC community and our state went far beyond his championship basketball skills. Our deepest condolences go out to all family, friends, and Tar Heels. The Big E made a big difference in this world. And as I said, tons of other current UNC coaches and basketball leaders out there shared statements. We have those gathered up in a post on chapelboro.com. You can also read our original coverage of Montross's diagnosis and people's reactions at that time if you want to head to our sports section of the website. 
Our other top local news of the day is in the local education realm. The Orange County Schools District officially has its next superintendent. The school board met today in a specially called virtual meeting and unanimously approved the hiring of Danielle Jones. She currently works for Durham Public Schools as the assistant superintendent and oversees that system's 12 middle schools. Jones previously worked as a leadership coach with DPS, but has also been a principal in Franklin County Schools and a middle school teacher herself. Her hiring comes after Monique Felder and the Orange County Schools District mutually agreed to release Felder from her contract just before the school year began in August. Felder was with the district for almost four years. Jones's contract with Orange County Schools is set to last about three years or more, and that will start on February 1st under a $190,000 annual salary. She was not at the virtual meeting today, but Jones is set to be at a school board meeting on January 8th, the first one of the new year, and the board in the district is asking the public to come to that meeting to help receive Jones, congratulate her, and of course meet and get to know her with that passing of the torch of leadership. Now, along those lines, we also have the passing of the torch tonight in the town of Chapel Hill. That's because the 2024-25 town council members are getting sworn in, as well as a new mayor. After eight years, Pam Heminger is stepping away from the role in Chapel Hill. Jess Anderson set to become her successor. Her tenure is marked with several pivotal moments in recent local history. Some of the few in recent years, uh, the unrest around Silent Sam and the Confederate statue's removal at UNC, to Hamminger's coordinating responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, and ushering through several major projects meant to help the town balance its environmental impact with improving, or I should say while improving, both economic and residential options. When we spoke to Heminger for her final Conversations with the Mayor's segment on the air last week, we asked her what she hopes people are going to remember her tenure by, as well as how she measures it herself. Here was Heminger's response. I hope I'll be remembered for buying the Legion property. I made that happen because it took a council vote, but I was determined, and many mayors before me reached out and said, you got to do this, and I'm just very proud, and I'm hopeful. I think the parking deck will be something... (laughs) The Innovation Center, pulling all that together with partnerships, part of that, but making that a priority, I think people will look back, and I hope they look back at the civil rights historic work we did. That was, to me, truly uplifting for the community and finally acknowledging the past. I'm hopeful those they'll remember that. Wegmans, I think I get tagged to Wegmans a lot, <laughs> <laughs> which fine with me. I'd love to shop there, and it's knocking sales tax revenues out of the park. Um, I don't know that people really understand the, the, some of the dynamics of our economic development pathway that we weren't on, that we are now on and making huge strides. And maybe the climate action plan. I know I spent years trying to get our street lights changed out, just getting us moving along on a real plan, and we have one. So I'm hopeful. And the affordable housing plan. I mean, we talked about forever about affordable housing and how we valued it, but we didn't have a plan. And so I'm, I'm all about doing the research creating a plan and then measuring yourself, holding yourself accountable for those plans. Once again, that is Chapel Hill Mayor Pam Heminger speaking there, but she's only mayor for a few more hours. Jess Anderson and the rest of the new Chapel Hill Town Council set to be sworn in at 7 o'clock tonight.
And we also just finished up our local election filing for the 2024 elections. It seems very close to on the heels of the local elections, but that's because North Carolina is now a March primary instead of a May primary. We do have a couple of contested Orange County races that uh, will be very interesting to follow during not just the spring, but the fall as well. You can head to our news section on chapelboro.com to get the details on those. And congratulations are in order to Susanna Brock of Carborough. She is the latest $1 million prize winner from the State Board of Education Lottery. The Lottery Commission said that Brock bought a $10 scratch-off at the shortstop on West Main Street in Carborough. And after choosing the lump sum option, she walked away with more than $420,000 after federal withholding. So congratulations to Susanna Brock of Carborough for that. And now time for our sports report. As we've been talking about the top story today, Eric Montross of the UNC men's basketball program and the Tar Heel Sports Network has indeed passed away at 52 years old, dying from his battle with cancer. Uh, we've talked about his off-the-court accomplishments. His on-the-court accomplishments are pretty amazing, too. Of course, winning the national championship in 1993. He had the iconic Bloody Montross game in 1992 to help UNC beat Duke in the year that Duke ultimately went on to win the national title. He was named first-team All-ACC in the 93 season. He earned the Final Four All-Tournament team spot and was named an All-American his senior year before being a first-round draft pick by the Boston Celtics. Uh, As we mentioned, of course, on the court and off the court, huge accomplishments and impact there from Montross, and that included by helping Carolina Athletics through the Rams Club. Montross was also the senior major gifts director for the Rams Club, so helping out in many ways there. As we mentioned, a lot of response from the UNC community, and we've got much of it shared right now on chapelboro.com from several former UNC coaches. And he did overlap with current UNC head coach Hubert Davis and, of course, had a very close relationship with Jones Angel, his co-host on those broadcasts. Uh, Angel and Davis would normally be doing the Hubert Davis live show tonight, but that has been canceled in the wake of Montross's death. So we will not be carrying that coach's show at 7 o'clock tonight. Instead, our live and local show will go straight into our overnight music programming with After Hours with Aaron Johnson. So be prepared for that at 7 o'clock tonight. I imagine Montross would want us to talk about some basketball results, so we'll dive into those from the weekend. UNC men's basketball fell just short again of a ranked win on Saturday as they dropped an exciting but occasionally sloppy matchup against Kentucky. Final score there was 87-83. Carolina actually held the lead at one point just once in the game, but it was pretty late to go. Five minutes left. Armando Baycott's free throw capped off a nice UNC run. It looked like the Tar Heels might be able to continue to ride that momentum, but their offense stalled out sometimes, turned the ball over in some key moments, especially right at the end of the game, and that kind of was the definition of the game with Kentucky's offense humming at UNC's having those mistakes they turned over the ball 17 times and that led them to drop their second consecutive game this is also the second straight game where Carolina has lost the rebounding battle the Wildcats out rebounded the Tar Heels by 10 and guard RJ Davis one of the smallest players on the court ended up as the team's leading rebounder here's what head coach Hubert Davis had to say after the game on Saturday about UNC's recent struggles on the glass to me, rebounding, you know, those energy and effort plays, it's, it's not about technique. It's just will and want to. Um, there's an attitude about it. And we have to make a, a commitment to be able to create contact first and be um, strong enough and to be able 
to do a better job rebounding. It's it's good that RJ got seven rebounds, but it's not good that he led the team in rebounding. And, and he ended up with seven. He had six in the first half, and he still led the team in rebounding. So, you know, as I said before when we talked, that, that is a huge emphasis for us, that we've got to find a way to become a better rebounding team. That's just number one on our list. Once again, that is UNC men's basketball head coach Hubert Davis speaking there. The Tar Heels with that loss now drop to number 11 in the Associated Press polls released today. They don't really get much of a rest or a break in their schedule. Up next is number 7 Oklahoma in the Jumpman Classic in Charlotte on Wednesday night. That is their penultimate non-conference game before facing Charleston Southern on December 29th. Then ACC play resumes. Meanwhile, the UNC women's basketball team will also be playing Oklahoma this week. They'll face the Sooners a day earlier in that same showcase in Charlotte. But those Tar Heels are flying high after their best offensive performance in a long time over the weekend. Courtney Banghart's program picked up the 96-36 win over Western Carolina on Friday in Carmichael Arena. They were led by senior Alyssa Utsby, who put up 23 points in that game. Some news from the transfer portal today from UNC football. The Tar Heels landed Texas A&M tight end Jake Johnson from the portal. If that name sounds a little familiar, well, it's because his brother, quarterback Max Johnson, committed to UNC earlier this month. The tight end Jake has two years of eligibility left that he could spend at Carolina. Uh, Does not seem likely that he'll suit up for the bowl game that the Tar Heels have on December 27th, but they are going to be pretty thin at the tight end position as one of their tight ends has already hit the portal. Kamari Morales is gone, and tight ends Bryson Nesbitt and John Copenhaver are out for the Dukes Mayo Bowl due to injury. The United Nations 28th Annual Climate Conference, or COP28, wrapped up in Dubai last week. Head of the Heat Policy Innovation Hub at Duke's Nicholas Institute and frequent Climate Thursday guest here on 97.9 The Hill, Ashley Ward, was there. She recently spoke with us to share some takeaways from the conference. Here's 97.9 The Hill's Andrew Stuckey with more. Ward told 97.9 The Hill that she saw three major takeaways from the conference— the first-ever focus on human health, the establishment of a loss and damage fund, and the specific calling out of fossil fuels. As a climate scientist that works in the world of public health, the health focus of the conference was particularly important to Ward. There were 110 countries sent representatives from their ministries of health, and over 140 countries signed on to the the pledges for uh, transitioning our health care systems, but also centering climate change and, and global health policy. So that's a really big deal, and, and the conversation around health day wasn't constrained to health day. We found that it filtered into every other conversation at COP. Framing conversations around health changed some of the long-term outlooks of the conference. One of the things that I felt happened at this COP, and I think the health conversation played a critical role, is look, even if we're able to mitigate, right, we are still going to experience these climate extremes and therefore, we are still going to need to, to invest in adaptation and resilience. And so it wasn't only just about health, but the health conversation and the realization that even at the best case scenario for mitigation, we're still going to have impacts to people really drove the adaptation and resilience conversation in a way that I was surprised, but also some of my colleagues who've been working in this for decades and who've attended every COP, you know, they also were very happy to see this elevation of this issue. Another major development at the conference was the establishment of a loss and damage fund. 
This is a pool of money established by wealthier nations who bear more of the responsibility of climate change to help lower-income nations who are already shouldering the greatest burden of climate change. The loss and damage fund, you know, became a thing, right? We established that now there's $700 million in the loss and damage fund. Not enough, but it's growing. Um, with some countries putting in substantive contributions, I mean, the UAE, $100 million, Germany, $100 million. I was a little bit embarrassed. The U.S. only put in $17 million, which, as we know, is pennies. You know, the hope is that it will grow and there will be more investment in the loss and damage fund. It's a start and it's further along than we've ever been in the past. So that's one thing. One of the more subtle developments at COP28 was the language adopted in some of the official documents. Particularly interesting was the first time the conference has used language that calls out fossil fuels. Here's Ashley Ward again. This is the first time ever at a COP that we have explicitly called out in the final language around the global stock take um, the role that fossil fuels have played and the need to wean off of fossil fuels. Now, the language was much weaker than many people would have wanted, and I actually uh, pulled up the language so that I could read it to you. Transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So there's a couple of elements of that sentence that are very important. The first is calling out fossil fuels explicitly, first time ever, and that really does help us going forward. The second is the term critical decade, which does set a timeline on which they're talking about. Another element that loomed over the conference was the controversial choice of Dubai as the location. There are people who boycotted COP this year because of its location. In addition to the extravagance of the conference itself, many people felt holding the conference in a country that's built its economy around fossil fuels is unacceptable. Here's Ashley Ward on how that influenced the conference experience for her. So first of all, air quality there is not that great. I mean, you can imagine they have a lot of oil refineries. And so part of being in Dubai with it being as hot as it was and with the air quality being what it was, again, that became the topic of conversation for people. Like, we really got to do something about the climate change stuff. It never really was far away, sort of the the irony of hosting uh, you know, a climate change conference and a petrostate. In spite of all the questions surrounding the conference, Ward still felt there was cause for some guarded optimism. One of the most powerful things about COP is, you know, not what takes place in the negotiating rooms. It's what takes place with the people that you meet. And I have a stack of business cards and lists of people to connect with, and it's very exciting to go forward. For 97.9 The Hill, I'm Andrew Stuckey.